So we actually got our product into the market in October of 2018 for the first time. And it was a very interesting experience because we didn't come from a restaurant background. So we didn't really even know how anything worked. We, we really just kind of made it up as we went along. You know, the first version of our hardware, our senior electrical engineer literally borrowed a piece of Tupperware from his wife and then packed it with all of the guts of the first version of our computer. And it was a lot of trial and error to get this Tupperware computer to work. My name is Rob Carpenter. I am the founder and CEO of Valiant AI. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Lapart, and today, how Rob Carpenter built the best conversational AI for the quick-serve restaurant industry. All this and more on Code Story. Rob Carpenter was born and raised in Dillingham, Alaska. And no, he can't see Russia from his back steps. He's been a long-time spaceship nerd and confesses that one of the reasons he got into entrepreneurship is because he wants to eventually secure a ticket to space. Currently, he lives outside of Boulder, Colorado with his young family and really enjoys the outdoors, growing his company, and taking good care of his little ones. While his kids are young, he loves to take the kids hiking, swimming at the pool, and going to the zoo and local animal sanctuaries. Rob started a company wanting to originally create holographic employees, and they even named this employee Holly. What they figured out during the process was that conversational AI hadn't been solved yet, and if they were going to make their original idea work, they would have to solve this problem. So, they got heads down solving it. This is the creation story of Valiant. Valiant automates drive through order taking at quick serve restaurants or more colloquially known as fast food. So imagine that you pull into the drive through and there's a microphone and speaker post and you get greeted and you place your order. Well, instead of talking to an employee inside the restaurant who might be getting pulled in five different directions, you have the complete, you know, and uh, total focus and concentration of an artificial intelligence. And so it's a conversational AI system. I think it's a next generation leap from Siri and Alexa, which are sort of very stilted, kind of ask and answer, very sort of basic interaction. Whereas this is a true sort of conversation flow and we'll have anywhere between five to 15 turns in the conversation. Whereas a Siri or, or a Google Home will have like one on average. And we have to carry over a tremendous amount of context follow-up questions and things like that that enable this AI to sort of feel and act like a real human talking to you and, and taking your food order. So we've been at it for five years now. We're a hardware software company. So we have a patent pending piece of hardware called the NX1A that we actually install inside the restaurant that hooks into their headset and base station system. And that's what actually allows us to converse with the customer. And then we've designed and deployed our own proprietary speech to text engine, NLU engine. And then what I refer to as the natural language generator, which is sort of the brains or the cortex of the 
system that says, do we serve this product? Is it in stock? Is it the right time of day? If you ordered X item, what clarifying questions do I need to ask you? Like, do you want bacon or what sauce do you want with it? Do you want to make it medium large? All of that happens in kind of what I refer to as the natural language generator. And then we convert whatever the natural language generator wants to say back to the customer, to audio. We send it back down to our patent pending hardware, send it to the headset base station system so the employee can hear it, and then finally up to the microphone to the customer. And we try to make that entire round trip take about a second to a second and a half so that it roughly feels like the speed and flow of carrying on a conversation with the customer. Where we started out was we actually wanted to build holographic employees. So imagine a transparent OLED display. It's like a piece of glass merged with a flat screen TV for people that aren't familiar with it. We turned it into portrait mode and then we set it inside of a frame that's roughly the size of a large kiosk. So it's about four feet wide, six feet tall. And we used the Unity game engine and we actually rendered a fully formed digital person. And her name was Holly and she could blink her eyes. She'd lean in when you'd talk. And the idea was that you could chat with her, carry on a conversation, place a food order, rent a car, get movie tickets, check into your hotel room. But what we found during that process was that we had thought conversational AI was a solved problem, and it's very much not a solved problem. And so we realized that if we were ever going to bring this sort of holographic employee technology to market, we were first going to have to uh, solve conversational AI. So we've been heads down just grinding on conversational AI for the last four years. And I'm actually excited to announce and you're the uh, the first person in the first group we've ever told this to. Uh, but on Thursday, we secured a deal with Checkers and Rallies that will allow us to sell and scale our voice AI technology to all of their franchisees. And as far as I'm aware, we are the very first voice AI company to achieve this milestone in the country. Well, let's dive into the MVP of For Valiant. What's that that first product you built? Um, you know, what sort of tools did you use to build it, and how long did it take you to build? The very first MVP of our product, we worked with a drive-through restaurant here in Denver called Good Times Burgers and Frozen Custard. They've got about 32 locations and they were willing to work with us and test us. And so we actually got our product into the market in October of 2018 for the first time. Again, as far as we're aware, we were the first company to live test conversational AI in the market. Um, And it was a very interesting experience because me and the team that I was assembling at the time, we didn't come from a restaurant background. So we didn't really even know, knew how anything worked. We we really just kind of made it up as we went along. And I mentioned earlier on, so we have a patent pending on this piece of hardware that we call the NX1A. It's now the fourth generation of the technology that we've developed and refined since we went live in October of 2018. But, you know, the first version of our hardware, our senior electrical engineer literally borrowed a piece of Tupperware from his wife that was probably like six inches wide and a foot long and then packed it with all of the guts of the first version of our computer that that we've eventually now designed and refined and it had a little raspberry pi in there and just had a bunch of like holes that he drilled into the side of the plastic tupperware to run wires 
and then wired it into their headset and base station system. And it was a lot of trial and error to get this Tupperware computer to work and to do what we needed to, because then like now our our AI resides up in an AWS cloud. And so we had to have a way to get the audio off premise and then back down to be able to carry on that conversation with customers. So that was about as uh, MVP as I think that you can get uh, from a technology standpoint. And then the software itself was really just an amalgamation of what we could get off the shelf versus like the very first versions of our natural language generator that I mentioned. And I would estimate that on average, the AI was completing like 3% of orders by itself. And then we had an upstanding member of our team. Uh, his name is, is Corey Palmerton, and he's still on our team. And he basically had a call center-like software interface. And so as the customer was ordering stuff and the AI was messing it up horribly, he was trying to fix everything on the fly so that the end experience felt like the AI was successfully completing orders uh, when really it was a guy you know, in a back closet basically pushing a lot of buttons, pulling a lot of strings, drinking a lot of coffee, and kind of sweating profusely. We, we always referred to it as we were trying to build the uh, airplane mid-flight, and he was trying to fly it at the exact same time. So it was a very interesting uh, MVP experience. With any MVP, right, you got to make certain decisions and trade-offs. And let's dive into some of those that you had to make in the short term. And, and I'm sure there's some stories, you know, tapped into that box of the hardware and the software uh, and, the, and the, the guy behind the scenes with the coffee. Um, tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and how you coped with them. Like any company, you know, getting started, we were really looking for things that were already widely available. So like I mentioned, we really thought this was a solved problem and that we could just plug into an API for Alexa or Siri or Google Home, and we would plug it into our cool front-end interface, which was the hologram. And we found that, number one, that was not true. There was no off-the-shelf solved solution. And so then, you know, you go down a layer and you say, okay, what's the current state of speech-to-text? What's the current state of... you know, NLP, NLU systems. I think like a lot of people working on conversational AI, we really thought dialogue flow would be that fit for us from an NLP standpoint. And I think we spent a good six to nine months really grinding on dialogue flow, which is Google's NLP product, trying to make that technology work for us. And at the end of the day, we just ended up having to abandon it because it was so far away from what we knew was required to create a true commercially viable product. And that's still why to this day, you don't see anybody other than maybe us from Thursday with an agreement to actually be able to scale this technology inside of any restaurant chain. It's either still in the lab or in the very, very first, you know, couple of tests uh, at a store. And so back then we just realized that if we really wanted to get this company off the ground, we were going to have to build our own NLP system. And so from that point on, we got a lot more serious about kind of build versus rent. And we ultimately ended up kind of realizing that whether it was speech-to-text or NLP or the natural language generator, none of those solutions were viable for the market. And so, although we explored each one of them, the decisions that we ultimately had to make is that we ended up having to build all of those systems in-house so that we could bring a product to market. In going about designing the NLP part of the product, what, you know, what did you have to work through there? Because that's that's not just, you know, throwing up a WordPress site. There's a lot of architecture that's got to go into an NLP product. So tell me a little bit how you work through that. 
got really fortunate and uh, we were able to hire a master's student out of CU Denver. His name is Praveen. He still runs the NLP team. We were working with a really talented uh, senior engineer uh, who was a contractor. And the two of them worked really closely for about a year and a half uh, to build the very first version uh, of our NLP system. And, you know, actually today, if you look at speech to text and NLP or NLU and the natural language generator as kind of the three core areas of our platform, I would say our NLP system is probably the most robust system and the most sort of stable production ready, whereas huge amounts of work every single day still go into the speech to text and the natural language generation system. And so as they really kind of started to dig in, you can just imagine the crazy complexity that you get from people when you try to pitch them a conversational system. You know, it's one thing to say like, play the Rolling Stones, right? That's really easy to pull out, okay, you know, what's the target, Rolling Stones, what's the intent, play, you know, and then submit those action items uh, into a system so that the music starts playing. It's a whole different story when, you know, the text of what you get is, hey, do you guys have the number three? No, actually, I just want a chicken sandwich. uh, And can I get lettuce on that? A Coke? Oh, and uh, no mayonnaise, uh, light ice. And it's just... It's just a stream of consciousness. And so you have to pick apart every piece of that statement and say, okay, they asked for this item, then they discarded it, so we need to discard it. Then they asked for this entree with this modifier, then they asked for this drink, oh, and then they made a contextual modification to the prior target, and then they made another modification to the end target, which is the drink to then be able to feed those actionable intents intelligently into the natural language generator so that the natural language generator can then do all of its job. And so I think it really was just a process of, you know, sitting down, writing and building and kind of working through the process. And I think we're at the point now where we see about a thousand new statements from customers a day. And I think the NLP kind of by itself can, you know, completely and accurately handle about 50,000 unique statements that we've seen from customers. And it's really just been a process of time and energy and focus to build all of that out. Let's go past the MVP. So how did you progress the product and mature it? And I think, you know, what I'm interested in there is how you went about building your roadmap and deciding, okay, this is the next most important thing to build. I think that we were fortunate because we had such a wonderful partner at the time, uh, this this restaurant chain, Good Times, that we were getting a lot of real data. And I think there's always a jump from the lab to the real market for every piece of key element of the technology. I mean, it's easy to make speech to text work in a quiet lab environment, you know, in your office or in your basement. Um, You know, good luck replicating that when you've got leaf blowers, you've got car horns, you've got cars backfiring, you know, birds we found have significantly confused the speech to text audio. All of these sort of environmental factors create huge amounts of complications. And so it was a very jarring jump to go from lab to in-market. And by October of 2018, we had been going for almost two years um, before we even got the first, you know, MVP version of our product into the marketplace. 
And as I mentioned, we were barely at 3% uh, of number of orders that we were accurately automating relative to, you know, what uh, you could call it kind of call center backup had to come in and fix to deliver a, you know, viable product. Because if you don't at minimum have a viable product, the restaurant's going to pull it and you stop getting good data. And so you just have to do kind of manual call center work to overcome those short-term hurdles so you can keep collecting data. And then as we saw the data coming in, I think especially from our perspective, those early years of 2018 to 2019, it was a lot of like really systemic things where people were making what we felt at the time were very complex modifications. What we realize now is just sort of the normal flow of things. And so there was a lot of like really foundational work that had to go into the platform. Something like context, as I mentioned, where somebody orders a, a burger, maybe they modify it, then they order something else, and then they modify something previously. And having the intelligence to go back and know what that could be, you know, that's some foundational conversational AI technology that took a lot of time to build. Other big kind of foundational issues is things that we refer to as fragments. Can I have, and then the customer trails off, and then they come back, a Diet Coke. If you don't have the intelligence to know can I have is sort of kind of a trailing language or sort of preamble language, then you might be quick to respond back to it. You know, your second and a half kicks in and you say, I'm sorry, could you repeat yourself? And then that creates some complications uh, in the order flow versus knowing can I have means some other data is coming. So be patient and actually don't do anything. And you wait a second or two and then the customer completes their statement. And then you have to intelligently merge those statements together because they might say, can I have, and they trail off. I'll have a Coke, you know, and so you have to take, can I have, and I'll have, and know, like, do I need to make sense of all of this? Can I get rid of some of this stuff? Can I merge it together? And so that was kind of this process of merging these fragments together uh, that I mentioned before. And so we just, we really, I think we're kind of just grinding through that. And then by the end of 2019, going into 2020, then it was starting to turn away from the foundational stuff to the edge cases. And I think this is where a lot of, um, of our, our competitors and peers are at right now is working through these edge cases because you get the foundational stuff done. But then, as I mentioned before, you know, we've got 50,000 plus things, you know, that we've heard that we have had to engineer, you know, uh, processes and response to, to be able to, you know, respond intelligently to the customer and to move the overall platform forward. And so we've really been just kind of hyper-focused on grinding through tens of thousands of edge cases. And when you combine enough edge cases, you start to arrive at a product that can complete 50, 60, 70, 80% of the orders uh, without any human uh, oversight or involvement. Well, let's switch to team. So how did you build your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they are the winning horses to join you? In the beginning, and honestly still to this day, we were just hyper-focused on kind of number one, culture, and then number two, I'll just sort of say is kind of overall intellectual aptitude. Um, a lot of what we were doing had never been done before. And that's exciting and kind of terrifying in the same aspect. You can't really go to GitHub, for example, or Google, and pull down a section of code that helps you with something like context in fast food restaurants. And so 
almost all of the key pieces of technology in our platform had to be built from scratch. And so we just, we really needed smart people that could hang with that and could build that out and could work through stuff. I mean, we just, intellectual aptitude slash maybe creativity is even a better way to put it. People that could think through problems and then just invent new ways to do things to get around the problems that we were running into. Um, and that served us extremely well. And I think to some degree, because we're coming from a background not deep, you know, in other conversational AI companies, we don't know what's been tried and failed. You know, we don't know what's going to work, what's not going to work. We're not coming in with any preconceived notions. We just keep tackling it one problem at a time. And I think between 2018 and 2020, the number of problems we ran into were discouraging. And to this day, we're still running into huge problems. But the team has gotten very comfortable of like, this is a problem we've ran into. 10,000 other problems and we've solved all of those, we'll solve this. And I think that's where the kind of first component I mentioned comes into play, which is culture, where, you know, we just, we want people that want to build exciting new cutting edge technology and get it into market. There are people that want mastery and autonomy. They don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to be micromanaged. They want to be involved in the big picture decision-making. They want to know what the key goals are and how the work they're doing fits to those key goals. And then I really ultimately just try to get out of their way and give them the resources and support that they need to get to those places to overcome these problems in whatever way they feel is best, kind of being on the front lines and dealing with all of these issues. And then I think that's ultimately served us well going into COVID. Obviously, as a software company, we benefit from, for the most part, not needing to be in person. Everybody was able to work remote, was still able to do all the things that they needed to do in those types of an environment. Um, and that that culture, I think, played a role in helping to kind of keep the whole team kind of knitted and connected together. And since I've started the company, I think we've only lost two full-time people in five years, you know, and we're, we're pushing 23, 24 people right now inside the company. And so I think that culture has played a really critical role of keeping people connected to the business, not getting discouraged by the problems. And also I think ultimately really enjoying the people that they get to work with because everybody's of kind of a similar personality and sort of mental aptitude. Let's, let's flip the scalability. So did you build this originally to scale in an efficient way or are you fighting this as you grow? We're definitely fighting it as we go. The software side, I think there's a lot of really good infrastructure, developer operations, things like that, that are in place that help us scale. Really where we run into all the issues from a scale standpoint are the things that we don't control point of sale systems. So we haven't really touched on that yet. Once we complete an order, we have to inject the order into point of sale systems. I had seven years of experience running my own custom software development company before Valiant. And we constantly heard just kind of horror stories of trying to get approved to be able to actually interact with and engage and, and insert orders into a point of sale system. And it's proved to be true. They are so hard. And it's just, again, it's hard to name all of the problems, right? Like the number one problem is no POS company wants to work with you for the most part. They view you as a potential competitor, whatever you're doing, they think they're eventually going to do, they don't want to give you access. And so you have to fight them to just gain access to their system. 
the systems themselves, once you get in, are all over the place in terms of how they've been implemented, the settings, the functionality, things like that. We'll have situations where we'll fix something for one store and it'll break it for two other stores because the way that they're implemented are completely different. And so we just have to keep building in more and more complexity and flexibility into our own system so that we can basically handle POS interactions on a store-by-store basis versus what you would hope would be on a, you know, ideally industry-wide basis or at worst case brand basis. And it's not, it's, it's literally every single store just has slightly different and tweaked settings. And so you get into granular integrations on a store-by-store basis. And so that point of sale process is time consuming, it's hard, it doesn't necessarily scale very quickly. And so that's all stuff that we're really working through right now. Other challenges that we've run into are the headset base station system. So I'd say there's probably seven primary headset systems that we work with. They are all kind of varying levels of, of age and stability, if you will. Some of these systems date back 20 years. So we're trying to bring, you know, 2021 cutting edge conversational AI technology to like borderline late 90s analog devices. Um, It's a very hard uh, integration process to get those systems to play nicely together. You run into other issues like the presence sensor, which is a magnetic strip underneath the drive through lane that senses if a car is there. And those magnetic strips themselves won't be reliable. They'll cut in, they'll cut out. The magnetic strip will tell the AI the car has driven away when the car is still there. It will say there's no car there when there is a car there. And so we've had to build a ton of additional technology and infrastructure onto our NX1A hardware to be able to handle these different use cases just down to something like this present sensor, which again is different on a location by location basis. So as we start to go to more locations, just like edge cases, you hope you start to run into the same problems, which means you've already solved them. And so then that scale starts to happen a little bit quicker. Um, but at least for where we are, which is the first kind of one to 10 units, uh, we're finding a lot of unique challenges at every single store that we go to. So I think it'll be a grind for the first you know, 10 to 30, and then I think it will start to go quicker after that. You know, it's interesting thinking about because you know, we talk about scale, it could be people or it could be tech. When we think about tech scaling, think about cloud SaaS, right? And how are you, you know, orchestrating or how are you going up the cloud? But there are a lot of parameters in w- the problem that you're trying to solve and a lot of different integration points and things you have to consider. So that's, that's a difficult problem to sort of standardize how you approach it. Yeah, when you're dealing with software eventually merging into 20-year-old analog hardware. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know that I'd use the term fun, but it's <laughs> it's interesting. There's never a boring day. <laughs> well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? Our team, the most proud of our team. I think we've been very fortunate. We've been able to attract some really amazing people. And 
I just, I really enjoy the people that I get to work with. Like, again, going back to culture, but they're all just like nice, good people, you know, where I think everybody cares about each other. I think we all have this sort of feeling like we're kind of in the trenches together. We're in the foxhole together. We want to get each other's back. And, you know, one thing I, you know, heard from a few of my engineers, you know, that had come from some of the really large tech companies previously is you just kind of feel like you're a cog in the wheel a little bit. And especially if you're outside of, let's say, the big five tech companies and you're in any of the ones that are going to put you in a cubicle farm, you know, a new executive will come in, you'll grind out a bunch of technology and then the executives will change and they'll scrap whatever project you were working on. And so it's like, well, cool, like I got paid for a year, but like what did I actually do with that time? Versus I think in in Valiant and other tech startups, it's like, man, I worked really hard this week, but by Friday my code was in production and I can talk to this AI and it can now handle this certain use case that it didn't used to be able to handle. And that's gonna now let us complete another one to 2% of orders by solving this key problem. And so I think it's just that, you know, that excitement, that curiosity, that creativity, and just sort of the, the good natured team that we've built, everybody is really on it. And it's sort of nice for me from a leadership perspective that, you know, I can focus a lot of my time and energy on the market, investors, customers, things like that. And the team themselves, by and large, are extremely self-sufficient. So it's, it's very gratifying to be a part of that. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. <laughs> Where to start? How many hours do you have to talk about mistakes in conversational AI? <laughs> I'll talk about business model. Um, that was a mistake that we made. I'd mentioned good times earlier. So our initial concept was that we would charge for this AI like it was a full-time employee. So the idea was we'd go to market and the AI would be $9.50 an hour. We thought, hey, we're plugging a full-time position. The market should be able to bear that if we're going to automate that position. And then, you know, slightly hush-hush behind the scenes, we were like, man, we got to staff full-time people to oversee these restaurants to make sure things go well. We need more revenue so that we can cover that. And we spent a lot of time working through that with good times and talking to other companies in the market. And what we ultimately came to find, and this was more like 2020, was that the market really couldn't bear that price point because Yes, for your couple of brands like McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or for some very high volume stores, they would have a full-time order taker. But you're talking 10% or less of the industry. For the whole rest of the industry, the order taker also processed payments, also put food into a bag, also filled up soft drinks. And so the restaurant could not automate a full-time position because you still needed somebody to do all of these other tasks to make the restaurant run. And so we actually, uh, Good Times ended their partnership with us at the end of 2019 because they're like, we just can't make this business model work. And so that was really hard for us. And we had to spend a lot of time in 2020 and honestly, even into 2021 to keep kind of revising our business model and figuring out a way where it could work for us and work for uh, the restaurants. And so where we've arrived at now is that we've distilled things down and we're looking to charge just a monthly SaaS fee for the technology. Um, 
and we haven't publicly announced it, but I'm happy to announce it here. So we're gonna be going to market. It'll be $9.99 per month for the technology per restaurant. And so if we were charging $9.50 an hour, that would come out to more like six grand a month. Um, so it's about one sixth of what we were charging or hoping to charge and just kind of painfully learning that the market really couldn't bear those kinds of costs. Well, Rob, what does the future look like for the product and for your team? We're continuing to grow pretty quickly. So to date, we've raised 10.5 million. We have uh, 24 people that are working for us, six of which we've hired in the last like six weeks. Um, I would anticipate another probably 10 to 15 people through the first half of next year as we continue to grow our team. We have our signed contract with Checkers and Rallies that allows us to scale with their franchisees. And we have um, three more of the big kind of QSR brand conglomerates behind that that we're working with um, that total about 80,000 units that we could sell to. So we have a lot of work to do <laughs> to be able to get to a point where we can successfully uh, manage multiple of these major brands. So we'll have some more fundraising announcements in the next couple of months. We have more people coming on the team, you know, and a lot more that we're going to be looking to do kind of to scale drive through. And I think that's all kind of in the short term. And then from a sort of midterm, I think we're going to start to look at branching into additional areas of restaurants, for example, call ahead automation, mobile integrations uh, for voice ordering. And then I think medium to long term, we'll start to look at new industries, hospitality, retail, healthcare are all very interesting. Um, and ultimately, at some point, I'm going to blow the dust off of that hologram and I'm going to get that into a restaurant so you can start to uh, visually interact and order from Holly. Let's switch to you, Rob. Who influences the way that you work? You know, a CEO, CTO, architect, really any person that you look up to and why? I got extremely lucky when I was starting Valiant and in 2018, this gentleman, Alan Silverman, uh, came, he met with me and ultimately decided to invest in Valiant and has now supported us across multiple rounds. He has, uh, you know, built and sold numerous companies himself. He currently is chairman of the board for a large grocery store chain, and he's helped to mentor a lot of young and growing startups. And I'm just very fortunate uh, for his support. And I think he's done a lot to guide me and help me and develop in my own career. I think as long term, we transition and sort of aim towards eventually being able to take Valiant public, something I've never done before, and a place where I can use a lot of support and guidance. And so I'm just really, really, I think, fortunate uh, to, to have him and then I would be remiss to at least not mention, you know, my wife. She's been there for everything, the ups, the downs. She's always so supportive. You know, she ultimately just wants me to be happy and enjoy what I'm doing. And when you're having a really hard day, it's just nice to have somebody that you can kind of lean on and talk to uh, for support and guidance. So I have a very, very good group of people around me, and I'm, and I'm very fortunate for that. We talked about a mistake, right? But a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I don't think I would do anything different. 
the story of Valiant and, and my story at Valiant is far from over. So I think there will be a point of reflection much further down the road where I'll have a complete beginning, middle, end to sort of do a post-mortem. But I think right now, kind of deeply focused on where we're at, other than our pivot from the holographic employee technology to drive through, we've really stayed the entire time super focused on this one use case. And COVID really accelerated some of the labor challenges in the market, which has, uh, as a result, accelerated the demand for our technology. So I think that side of the equation has been very positive. I think I would have just done some smaller things differently. You know, maybe I would have gone directly to this product out of the gate without the kind of pit stop, if you will, uh, with the holographic employee technology, even though that's what led me to it. And I would say we invested six months to a year upfront, just like everybody else, uh, trying to get the existing systems to work from the off-the-shelf providers before realizing they just weren't viable. So I probably just would have saved the time and energy and gone right directly into building our own technology. And maybe that would have saved us, you know, six to nine months of time. Um, because if I was where I was at now, but six to nine months earlier, you know, we could be at 500 restaurants by now. And so I think it's really, it's just a matter of staying the course, staying super focused. Um, and I think we've got a huge opportunity ahead of us. Well, last question, Rob. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? My answer may seem lame, um, but I think it's the right one, which is don't give up. And if you're sitting next to this hungry entrepreneur and they're super excited, I think giving up is the farthest thing from their mind. But it's like, wait until like year two or year five or year nine, you know, because these startup journeys generally, uh, except for a few cases, when they're successful, they're not necessarily successful in 24 you know, hours or 24 months. Like they take time and they take years. And there are periods where I think everyone gets a little disillusioned with the product, uh, with the market. And that's not to say you shouldn't be responsive to what's out there, but as I try to be you know, a student of other successful entrepreneurs, it does seem like one of their constant pieces of feedback in terms of why they were successful is they just didn't quit and they just kept going and they just kept going, you know, and every obstacle was just an opportunity to build a little more intellectual property into their platform once they overcame it. So be a little responsive, you know, change if you need to change. But if the idea is solid and the market opportunity is there and it's just a matter of time to overcome the hurdles, then just do not give up. And ultimately, it'll put you in a much better place because you'll have more defensible technology. So just keep going. Don't give up. That's great advice. Rob, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Valiant. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. And this concludes another chapter of Coat Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.